This episode is brought to you by Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media for six years, hosting their pilgrimages to Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized group pilgrimage specialist, serving the Catholic community for nearly 30 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. <sighs> why, are you, why are you yawning? It's a little early in the morning, I'm just saying. It's 11 a.m., Zach. Yeah, normally I'm... He's like, I'm not used to being up this early on a Tuesday. Yeah, jeez. Anyway, good to be with you both. <laughs> good, good to have you here. Glad glad you can make it at 11 a.m. Happy. I, I'm happy and grateful. Um, what are we drinking, Zach? So uh, on tap this week, we've got some coffee. Uh, I'm suffering through. I'm using sort of the office Keurig-esque mm. coffee. Um, I yes. normally make fancier coffee, but... Yes, unless unlike our us coffee peasants over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but didn't have time to was in a hurry, so didn't have time to get the AeroPress out. But nonetheless, <laughs> cheers to staying awake. Cheers, cheers. <laughs> Who are we talking to today, Olga? So this week we're talking with Dawn Eden Goldstein. She is a journalist and the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same, which is about her conversion to Catholicism in the early 2000s. And my piece I give you about how the saints helped her healed from the trauma of being sexually abused. Yeah, and so Dawn was a uh, she grew up in a Jewish household um, and then converted to Catholicism in the early 2000s during the first round of the clerical sex abuse crisis. So she brings a very interesting uh, perspective to that. Yeah, we talked to her about her conversion, the saints, and why she stays in the church uh, today. But before we get to that interview, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So this first story is a headline that needs to come with, I think, some qualifications. But first, the headline is that there was a pretty big spike in the reports and of allegations of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, according to an annual report from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, and so this is the period from July 1st, 2017 to June 30th, 2018. Um, a little over 1,300 adults came forward with about 1,400 allegations of abuse, and that's up from almost 700 the previous year. And so right. that's almost double. Yeah, and so that, this is linked to the opening of victim compensation funds. So uh, especially in New York, the um, a bunch of different dioceses uh, created these funds and encouraged victims to come forward um, to reach settlements. Right. And this this data predates summer 2018, which is when the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report was released, and which is a lot of people now characterize this as the second round of the clerical sex abuse crisis. Right. It makes you wonder if this number is you know, going to continue to rise as more people are talking about it again. What's our next story, Ashley? So this past weekend, the bishop in Rhode Island, Bishop Thomas Tobin, uh, tweeted that Catholics should not support or attend LGBTQ Pride Month events held in June. Um, And he added that these events promote a culture and encourage activities that are contrary to Catholic faith and morals and said they're especially harmful for children. And as you can imagine, this 
caused quite a stir on Twitter. Right, right. And and June 1st is, like Ashley said, the start of Pride Month, which was started to commemorate the Stonewall riots of 1969. And ever since Bishop Tobin tweeted this, criticisms have poured in. Some have even asked for him to resign. Um, and people are especially enraged that, you know, this was coming from someone in the church, given the church's own failure to keep children safe. Yeah, it's just, it, it go, it, that was sort of the most common response, I think, on Twitter. And uh, I don't know, we, we, we all thought, I think we all agreed that this was not necessarily a super helpful tweet from the bishop. Um, why did you guys think this was maybe harmful during this time? Well, I think, you know, the LGBT community is already so marginalized, especially in the church. And I think this makes it really difficult to give them the pastoral care that they really, really want, you know? Right. Yeah. There are Catholics that are going to be part of these marches um, and who are a part of our church. Um, And while I don't think, you know, a bishop has to avoid saying what the church is teaching on marriage is, this is not this is not a marriage. This is an event mm-hmm. that, um, you know, while there are aspects of it that might go against church teaching, it's fundamentally about upholding the dignity of LGBT people um, and, and, the- and recognizing, you know, the ways that they've been abused and marginalized in the past by the church and in the U.S. society. As yeah, well. it should not be controversial to say that the church and society has not upheld the dignity right. that our LGBT brothers and sisters have. And so, and these these marches should be a chance to engage with that or learn from it. And obviously, as you said, not maybe everything that happens isn't going to make you feel comfortable or be in line with church teaching. But like... Yeah, same with Mardi Gras. <laughs> same with Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. And the 4th of July. Right. Yep. What's our next story? So our next story is coming out of Ireland, where an archbishop has asked parents to stop giving kids smartphones as communion gifts. He says, you know... We wouldn't allow children to go out into the world unsupervised. We shouldn't give them access to the Internet without guiding them, which makes me wonder, what did you guys get as communion gifts? Uh, Not a smartphone. (laughs) No. Well, but that's, you know, sign of the times, I believe, as they say. Uh, Yeah. No, I got an old Nokia block phone. (laughs) No, really, I got like a a precious moments Bible, I think. (laughs) And those little figurines, those Mm -hmm. are all over my house. I think it had a little bunny next to it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just think I got I think I got some petty cash. I don't know. I made Mm. my first communion when I was in sixth grade, a little late. I was a slow learner. Um, But yeah, I think I just got some cards and petty cash. There's a nice little barbecue after. So the archbishop is saying he's referring back to the Synod on Youth that happened last fall where Pope Francis really called out the screen culture that really, really affects children of this age. And, you know, I'm kind of in favor of this. I don't think that young kids should have smartphones. I think that unless they have the sort of social media and technology literacy that might help them to navigate the world, I'm totally in favor of just not giving young kids smartphones. What about you guys? Oh, yeah, totally. Even if they do have, I don't want them to have social media literacy. (laughs) I want them to be outside playing. (laughs) uh, I'm going to take the opposite approach here, right? Uh, I actually think it's kind of healthy for it to be presented with a uh, maybe a piece of technology in the context of your family in your church. It's not like, you know, just handing a a seven-year-old the keys to a Ferrari, right? And like telling them to go drive, right? You can set up parental controls. You can sort of talk them through the ways that it's appropriate to use technology at that age, which may be very little, right? But to pretend like it doesn't exist is a disservice to our young people. Okay, maybe for their birthday, but that, but at Holy Communion, <laughs> I think yeah. I think Bibles might be the way to go. All right, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Ashley, what's our next story? 
The relics of the children saints of Fatima were stolen from a church in Verona. So these were, this is the relics of Francisco and Jacinto Marto, who were witnesses of Marian apparitions uh, in the early 20th century. So this is a really fascinating story, which makes me wonder, how often do relics actually go missing? And is this something that has always been happening? Yeah, I did a little research. So relics are either like parts of a saint, like their body or their bone, (laughs) or they are objects that they owned or interacted with or touched. And it's really not a new concept. Like since the beginning of Christianity, people have wanted to keep reminders of the holy people that lived with us on this life. And so you'd have like bodies and of saints and getting traded among different cities because if a, a city hosted, uh, a particular saint or a particular holy item uh, that would increase pilgrimages to their AKA town, money. <laughs> aka uh, tourism dollars and status. Um, so, for example, like Saint Francis of Assisi, uh, he was buried super, super deep under a ton of stone, uh, so that way people wouldn't go fighting over his body and he would get oh, split interesting. up. Interesting. Hmm. Um, but thieves aren't always like taking bodies and things for spiritual reasons. Uh, and they don't often realize what they're taking. There is this instance in 2012, so more recently, where uh, thieves stole a, a backpack that had a vial of John Paul II's blood. And the vial was found because the thieves took the reliquary. So this is a, a ornate thing that the relic is often stored in. And so that looked very obviously valuable to them. Mm-hmm. So they took that, ditched the rest of the stuff. And <laughs> so... I don't so, know. Thank God we still have yeah, we a still little have... bit of JP2's blood. <laughs> yeah, we still got that. But yeah, goes back a long time. All right. Well, hopefully we can stop this trend soon. 2019. 2019 <laughs> is the year. No more relic stealing. Got it, everyone? All right. What's our next story, Olga? So this week, the French Senate approved the restoration bill for the Notre Dame, which was severely damaged by a fire back in April. And the clause says that the church must be restored to the original state. Now, this has been quite a controversy among some people with the French president wanted to be more inventive with the restoration. Other people say it must stay exactly the same. So I'll just say I don't really have any strong opinion on this, but I know that you guys do. <laughs> this sounds familiar. <laughs> sounds yes. like a new segment, maybe. Olga on the fence. <laughs> yes. So this is the part of our show where Ashley and I present our closing arguments and try to s- persuade Olga to yes. our side. Okay. So Ashley, you're up first. Uh, oh, gosh. Okay. So I definitely want it to stay the same. I mean, it doesn't have to be like we don't have to use unsafe building materials mm-hmm. to keep it exactly the same. But I do want it to look like it looked before the fire happened. Um, I think one of the like really moving things after the fire is how it evoked this like really deep attachment um, to this um, Catholic symbol and building and that it meant a lot of people, even in this very secular country, Um And I think that says something about the Catholic imagination and the way that it um, evokes the transcendent. And I do not trust that modern architecture can evoke that same same feeling. I don't think it would be done for the glory of God. I think it would be done for the glory of some famous architect. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want us to stick to the original plans. I do like that. I really did appreciate the way that people came together to express how like mm-hmm. profound they found this. Um, but what about you, Zach? I found the backlash to innovating in the cathedral in any way whatsoever a little bit weird and off-putting because, I mean, at the end of the day, do you want Notre Dame to be a church or do you want it to be a museum, right? And if it's a church and it, this church was built using the architectural 
standards of the time, and maybe it was even a feat to the architects at the time. But it's gone through this traumatic experience. A lot of it's burnt down. And it can maintain a lot of the Gothic architecture. Much of it is saved, but it also needs to have a sign of new life and resurrection. And for that to be possible, we can't just go back to the way it was. So we need something new. We need to now there does need to be a swimming pool on top (laughs) or a parking lot. But there has to be something that we can incorporate to show that, you know, the the wounds of the the fire are still visible. But we're moving forward with the life of the church. I don't see why that that can't be the case and it still be the old spire. Like that would be, you know, a new it would be it would still be a new spire. It just wouldn't be like a laser beam shooting into the sky like someone proposed. Someone did propose a laser beam in the sky. <laughs> now, it doesn't have to be that, but we should have a conversation with architects and church leaders and churchgoers about what 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 does the church need right now See, in this is my concern, is that it's owned by the state. So it's not the church that's going to be re- rebuilding it. So unless they stick to the original design that was influenced by the Catholic imagination, it's going to be removed from that and a completely secular concept. I, I I think we just need to widen our understanding of Catholic imagination <laughs> beyond the uh, Gothic period. I think I'm going to have to go with Ashley on this. Ah! <laughs> Sorry, Zach, you came really, really prepared, but I, I do agree with you, Ashley. I think the original structure just really does do a phenomenal job of like really showing us the Catholic imagination. And I think like people are, around the world are so connected to the original structure that it, I feel like it would be such a disservice to not return it to that state. I yeah. think you just want an Instagram with the way it was. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sore loser. <laughs> <laughs> no, Olga's just very smart. <laughs> but listeners, what do you think? Do you side with Ashley or do you side with Zach? Let us know in our Facebook group. Joining us via Skype is Dawn Eden Goldstein. She is a Catholic author, journalist, and former rock music historian. Her new memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same, was published this year by Catholic Answers Press. Welcome to Jesuitical, Dawn. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, we're super excited. And so your new memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same, is your conversion story. So you grew up Jewish, then were agnostic, then were Protestant-ish, and finally you became Catholic. But before you converted to Catholicism, it seems like music operated kind of like a religion in your life. Is that a fair thing to say, or would you describe it in different terms? Oh, I would certainly say that music operated as as a religion in my life. Uh, I was looking for transcendence. Uh, Although I grew up Jewish, uh, by my teens, I had become an agnostic. I had some wounds from my childhood. Uh, I had suffered sexual abuse in childhood, and like many victims of childhood abuse, I I had a lot of uh, misplaced guilt, misplaced shame. Also, you know, the question of how could God love me? Because if God loved me, then I wouldn't be feeling this sadness and anxiety, depression. Um, and so, uh, when I really got into music, that became my escape my outlet for transcendence so i would go to a concert or i would listen to a great album like the zombies odyssey and oracle and i would feel that i was 
in a kind of ecstatic way being taken out of myself and also being put in a kind of um, strange union. I wouldn't have called it communion, but in a strange kind of connection with others, with the people who made the music or with the others at the concert. And so um, that was my kind of balm for loneliness and isolation. So where did you start to feel like you were moving towards Catholicism or Christianity and what sort of solidified your your move from this uh, finding transcendence in the rock clubs to finding it in a church? Well, I felt like I knew Christianity from a young age. My family was not in any way anti-Jesus. I came from a Reformed Jewish family, and I was taught as a child that Jesus was a good man. We just don't believe what Christians believe about him. Uh, so, uh, so you know, from childhood, I felt like I knew the stories, and in theory, Jesus is is nice. But I thought he couldn't really be God because if he were God, then everything would be different. And clearly. Life goes on, there are still wars and poverty and unhappiness, so therefore, you know, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because the world, you know, to my, you know, child's mind had, had not been transformed. I have to say, even as an adult. You can just read a newspaper that, yeah. and you feel yeah, pretty good about exactly. it not being transformed. Yeah, that seems, that yes, checks out. Yes. But anyway, in answer to your question as to how I became Christian, I was 27 doing a phone interview with a rock musician in a band called the Sugar Plastic. And I thought I'd ask him, what have you been reading lately? And he said he was reading G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. I had no idea who Chesterton was, but I just thought, well, when this band, The Sugar Plastic, comes to town, I want to be able to tell the singer that I read this book he recommended. So I went out and picked up Chesterton's novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, having no idea that Chesterton was this great convert to to Catholicism. And uh, that book began to change the impression I had of Christians, because until then, I just thought Christians were Jerry Falwell, moral majority, triumphalists who ruled the world. And if I wanted to be creative and different and myself and, and, and care about the poor and the environment, uh, that I had to be against whatever Christians were, were for. Um, and so Chesterton presented Christianity as something rebellious, and that, that challenged me, and that uh, began my journey, although it, it, my journey didn't uh, end with him. So, Don, you, you've written this Sunday will never be the same. It's about your conversion to Catholicism. But you've also written a book about how your faith helped you heal from your experience of abuse in a synagogue when you were a child. And the title is My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints. Did the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church sort of give you pause when you were considering joining in the early 2000s? Oh, it, it, certainly, it, it certainly did. I remember being at a meeting of the New York City G.K. Chesterton uh, Society and the uh, topic of, of abuse coming up. And based on what I had seen in the headlines, I had seen quotations from people like Bill Donahue of the Catholic League um, or uh, Father Benedict Groeschel, who, you know, at that time in 2002 were presenting the abuse crisis as though it was something trumped up by a Catholicating media. So for myself as, as a Protestant and as someone who had suffered abuse, I said to the Catholics in this Chesterton Society group, um, oh, well, you know, I know you don't want to hear about this because you Catholics don't believe there's a problem, but blah, blah, blah. 
And they stopped me, you know, to their credit, um, and they said, we are just as angry about this as you are. This is our church, and we're furious that our priests would, our clergy would, would do this. And that certainly planted seeds you know, for me because it was um, the beginning of understanding you know, a distinction in terms of how Catholics could understand the church, that they could understand the church as something holy and also as something that was in need of purification. So the, or at least one of the instances of abuse that you suffered was, it was in a temple, it was not by, it was not by clergy. Um, and you, and you told your mom about it at the time. Um, and you write in your memoir that this, the abuse you suffered and maybe the way that your mom responded to it, it, it damaged your relationships with your parents in in the long yes. run. Um, and so that was something else you had to work through. And I'm wondering, like, what you've learned from trying to repair those relationships and what it might teach the church about how it can respond to the sex abuse crisis. Thank you for asking that, because the questions that you're asking are exactly the kinds of questions that we should be asking. My mother, uh, with respect to that first abuse that you mentioned from the janitor at the temple, um, she, her first response was to say, you let him do that to you, um, because she thought that, that somehow I had wanted affection and my dad was out of the home, so I had somehow sought out this man and, and, uh, or somehow had failed to stop him because I somehow wanted it, which is, you know, horrible. I was five years old at that, at that, at that time. Um, and so th- that was one you know, wound, that misplaced guilt. Um, and, and also uh, later on, the abuse was from one of my mother's boyfriends. And there again, I felt that, um, that my mother had in some way uh, enabled the abuse. Um, but, but Mary was certainly a part of my healing in that um, as I was distant from my mother, I needed to find a way to pray for her. And I found a way through asking Mary to be not only my mother, but also my mother's mother. And that helped me to see my mother as a human being who herself did need a mother. Um, and that helped her to, to um, not have loom in such an outsized way for for me. It helped to bring her down to a a human level and also a level where I could love her in in an appropriate way. So in in that sense, you know, certainly the saints can be therapeutic. Saints, if we pick the right saint or the right saint picks us, they can in a certain way reparent us. And Don, you you speak so well about justice on this topic, which is something we can definitely apply to the church. Um, and you have this this really great quote that you said to Eve Tushnet for a feature in America that Saint Mary Goretti on her deathbed forgave her attacker, but she also described him to the cops. Yeah. Just as mercy doesn't exclude justice, likewise penance doesn't exclude justice. Rather, it is a part of justice. Absolutely, yes, and that's an important point of my piece, I give you healing sexual wounds with the help of the saints. I have a chapter on forgiveness there because I think it's really important for anyone who's suffered abuse to understand what the church teaches about forgiveness, which means knowing what forgiveness is and what it isn't. I had a bad confession experience as a new Catholic where, because it was just during that 
time when I was beginning to break from my mom. And, and I, I went to confession with a priest I didn't know. And I told him I'm mad at my mother. And I probably mumbled something, said something about her be, having been abusive or having permitted abuse. Generally, people who've suffered this are really uncomfortable talking about it. And, and so if they try to say something in confession, it may not come out very understandably. Um, but in any case, the priest said something to me that was wrong. He said, well, you have to forgive your mother. So for your penance, so for, for my penance, he said I had to reach out to, to my mother. Uh, and it, it took years before I actually picked up the catechism, read what the catechism says about forgiveness, and saw that if that priest knew his catechism, he would know he was wrong. It's not our own work, the catechism says. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We ask the Holy Spirit to forgive this person. Um, but with respect to reconciliation, in my piece I give you, I explain that if someone is actively abusive, then forgiveness actually means not giving them another opportunity to abuse. Because forgiveness means wanting God's best for that person. And if I'm an occasion of sin for this person, um, because this person you know, sees me and they become abusive, then the most loving thing that I can do for this person is not give that person the occasion of, of, of seeing me or being around me. Um, certainly reconciliation is ideal and we work towards it, but we know that as long as we've forgiven in our heart, then even if we haven't reconciled with our abuser, we have truly forgiven. And Don, I just want to thank you so much for talking to us about this topic and for speaking so well about something that it's not always easy to talk about. Um, but we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Thank you for asking. Do I have to give just one answer? We, we prefer one. Yeah. <laughs> if you nail it down to one. doesn't have to be the most deserving, but just the one you give now. Okay. Father Ed Dowling, SJ. All right. Tell us about Father Ed Dowling, SJ. So Father Ed Dowling was the spiritual director to one of the greatest men of the 20th century, um, Bill W., founder of AA, who was not Catholic. Um, and, and Father Ed uh, had a, a deep uh, impact on Bill W.'s own uh, personal healing and on his understanding of the meaning of, uh, of, of, of suffering and that God could use something even as God could use Bill W.'s very hunger and very thirst to draw him closer to God, that, that, there, that the pain could be part of, of this wider purification that would heal Bill W. Um, Father Ed, besides working with AA, also helped to, to found the Cana Conference, which was originally, now we just know it as pre-Cana, but originally it was to, to help troubled marriages. He also became involved with Recovery Incorporated, which was a support group for uh, people who had um, anxiety disorders. It still exists in some form. And, and so th this uh, holy Jesuit just spent himself helping people in groups who needed recovery and, and healing. And when I was going through uh, my graduate school, getting my sacred theology licentiate and my doctorate, uh, I really hoped that I could work towards canonizing, being a postulator for the canonization for Father Ed and for, uh, and for certain others, such as Father Louis 
Jay Toomey, S.J., um, and also uh, Father Daniel A. Lord, S.J., who are each uh, wonderful uh, pi- pioneers in their way. All right. Well, we'll see what we can do. We don't require that our guests <laughs> pick Jesuits, but it always helps. Oh, I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, I mean you're, you're talking to someone who every weekend that I'm in town, I go to the Georgetown Jesuit Cemetery oh. and pray for the Holy mm. Souls. Uh, it was a Jesuit who helped me to find my vocation as a theologian. And so uh, I'm like the biggest Jesuit groupie you can <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, the book is Sunday Will Never Be the Same. Uh, where else can people find your work? Oh, they can find it on Twitter, at Dawn of Mercy, and on my blog, The Dawn Patrol, which is at Dawn Eden, D-A-W-N-E-D-E-N, dot blogspot, dot com. Awesome. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Bye. you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media for six years, hosting their pilgrimages to Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized group pilgrimage specialist, serving the Catholic community for nearly 30 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week I've got a consolation. I had an interaction with a friend last week that left me feeling extremely angry. It wasn't anything serious. I won't go into detail here. But, you know, friends can anger each other. And I, for most of Friday, I just wanted to immerse myself in that anger and be unwilling to kind of step out of that. And I was like, okay, wait, you you have to take this to prayer. This is one of your best friends. You can't just be in this really dark negative space. So I kind of prayed about it throughout the weekend. And, you know, yesterday morning I came into work and I was like, okay, what is he going through that he's feeling this way or that he acted in this way? Um, and I know the consolation is that the habits that we're kind of developing here on this show when we like talk to Father Sandra, when we talk to each other, really made me think like, okay, aside from the initial anger, I was like, okay, there's a healthier way of doing this. Take this to prayer and kind of just use the faith habits that you've been building with your co-host to get out of that situation. So that was my consolation for this week. That's good. Habits yeah. habits are really important because otherwise, <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to get trapped in that. Very easily. <laughs> yeah. What do you got, Ashley? I have a desolation, which is kind of related to those habits or a lack of them. Um, I talked about how I've really benefited from, like, the discipline of Lent and uh, being in a prayer group and how it, you know, it really kept me going. Um, but since then, I have to say, like, it's not even just like a prayer drought. Like, I've I've have I lack the even the desire to pray like usually when I'm not praying there's a part of me that's like all right Ashley you should be praying but I like have gone like weeks where I'm just like don't even think about it and that's like a new level of like disconnect for me um that I find really disconcerting and like has made it really hard to bring think about consolations and desolations um so I was talking to Father Sundrup about this and he was like it kind of relates to what we were talking about in our conversation with him about doing your homework um and like I just have not been doing my homework and and it and it shows it shows in like 
finding it harder to be grateful for things, um, keeping the people I care about um, at the forefront of my mind. Uh, so that's been desolating. And Father Sundrup told me the, the next step is to, if you don't have the desire to pray, pray for the desire to want to pray. And if you <laughs> can't even do that, pray for the desire to have the desire to want to pray. <laughs> so, you know, as far back as you need to go. Yeah, get somewhere. <laughs> get, get your foot in somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's where I am now. <laughs> what do you have, Zach? This week, I've got a consolation. Uh, was in out of town over the weekend and visiting a couple uh, friends. Uh, these are male friends of mine, and this is this just got me thinking because my men's group was actually discussing this article uh, in Harper's Bazaar that was talking about how men lack a lot of male friendships, and because of that, uh, if they have female partners, their female partners are bearing the emotional brunt of that because um, they don't talk about their feelings with anyone, uh, therapist or friends or otherwise. Um, and that got me thinking about all of the different ways that people in church and out of church. I mean, I can think in my high school youth group, there were people asking me questions about, you know, what does it mean to be a man and what is a real man and sort of challenging a lot of the narratives I was hearing other places. And so just getting me comfortable with opening up to other people and then all the way through college and even now in the men's group that I have, it's just like, I'm so grateful that there have been people to sort of bring me to a, a point where I can challenge some of these toxic ideas of what it means to be a man. And so the shift to gratitude for all these people uh, that have been in my life and are still in my life, it was my consolation this week. That's good. Yeah. You're a good man, Zach. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. Production help from Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Full Moon 4. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashlyn Kinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>